but I would start out not focused on the letters after my name, not focused on the alphabet soup, but focused on the fundamentals of project management and learning it. Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. This is our time to talk with you about what really matters to you as a professional project manager. We want to encourage you, to challenge you, to give you some new ideas and perhaps a fresh way of looking at the profession. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are the two guys who make this podcast happen, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, today we're actually going to hone in on some questions that we've gotten from our listeners. I like that. We've gotten some good feedback from our listener community, and I'm looking forward to diving into that. I think it would probably be a good idea, though, to maybe learn a little bit more about you two guys. I mean, we've, we've gone for so long talking to different guests, learning about them, but who is Andy Crow and Bill Yates? <laughs> Andy, you are an author, a speaker. You, you've, you've done so many things. How did, how did you get into this? And I'm also an existentialist, so that's a really interesting question <laughs> that, you're, that you're asking. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> you know, Nick, I have been doing this a while. Uh, I've been managing projects really um, since the late 80s, but technically formally with the title uh, since the early 90s. And seen a lot of changes uh, come through. You know, when, when I started, it's funny because I was, I was there, you know, for the birth of Microsoft Project, and we all thought this was amazing. And that turned out to be a really interesting thing for project managers because it could reformulate a schedule, it could do things like that, but it didn't make people better project managers. Just like handing Microsoft Word to a writer is not going to make them a better writer. Uh, handing a, a good mm-hmm. microphone and an mm-hmm. amp to a speaker isn't going to make them a better speaker or a better communicator. And so, you know, when I started with this, uh, the the tools that were coming along were useful, but they also just enabled a lot of bad practices. Mm-hmm. So I put my career and my energy into learning project management, learning how it should be done, uh, probably... Uh, learning enough to be really dangerous because then I had a hundred different ways to do something that that probably you know just needed a simple solution. Uh, I've written a few books on project management. I've written a couple of test-oriented resources for the PMP exam, how to pass on your first try, and the PMI ACP, which is the Agile Certified Practitioner exam, how to pass on your first try, and then uh, Alpha Project Managers, which is my favorite of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it you know it's not the one that's uh, been the most commercially successful of the three, but it was the most fun to really get in and research the practices. It's called what the top two percent know that everyone else does not, and it looks at the practices that make some project managers successful and uh, maybe uh, sets them apart from their peers. We're looking forward to tackling some of the questions using your background and expertise in uh, getting into some of these things that our listeners have uh, have asked us. But let's meet Bill Yates. Bill, yeah. uh, you know we, we've we've heard your voice. We've 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 sort of gotten to know you a little bit through the podcast. But uh, tell me a little bit about your background. So who is this yeah, guy, right? Yeah. I joined Velocity in 2005. Prior to that, I really cut my teeth in project management with financial projects for utilities. So these are gas, electric, and telcos, mostly throughout the United States. And these were nerdy, high data, high intensity type projects. 
that um, really taught me a, a lot about the the need for rigor, the need for process, the need for project management. What's interesting to me, you talk about the evolution, Andy. I remember early in my career, project management was something that we would not call ourselves a project manager. Yeah, that was a bad word because it, it was. was overhead and exactly. the client wouldn't pay for it. Yes, mm. yeah. yeah. So yeah. you would not show that on an invoice. And so it was almost like a, a kind of a hidden secret of, yeah, we're doing these other things. I think it's actually project management, but we don't want to show this to the client. This is just an expectation. My, how times have changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So even through my career, it went from something that we would actually do kind of, you know, in the back of the office to something that we would actually put in our proposals to clients for new for new opportunities. Well, I'm going to argue something or suggest something that in some ways that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. And here's why. And we're going to touch on some agile Questions. I got a sneak preview of the of the questions. Right. It's like uh, the the debates where you get to see them in advance. <laughs> um, but I think some of the some of the rise of agile, and believe me, I'm a fan of agile. Okay, but I believe some of the rise is because there is no project manager, and the organizations, some people in organizations, still gnash their teeth at the idea of paying for a project manager. They mm. want that PM to be coding. They want that PM to be laying bricks or doing architecture or whatever. They mm. don't want to pay a PM uh, to manage Gantt charts and work breakdown structures. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Agile does away with the PM. There is no PM, yeah. and it makes it easier. Others, they want one person to hold accountable. Well, that's <laughs> – yeah, and, and I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we, we talk about having one head to pat and one butt to kick, yes. and that's a, that's a good model, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways. But yeah. Agile definitely doesn't do that. You've got the whole team to pat or kick that's <laughs> appropriately. Yeah. Nick, one mm-hmm. of the things that I'll probably – is I, I took a sneak peek at some of these questions too mm-hmm. – much of the work that I did prior to joining Velocity was at the customer's site. So we did a lot of external projects. Some of the questions that, that listeners brought into us were, hey, you know, how do you relate to customers? How do you deal with stakeholders and that kind of thing? Uh, I've made, I got plenty of scars, plenty of stories to tell in that area, mistakes that I've made or mm-hmm. our team has made. So hopefully I can um, help some people out by sharing our bad stories and they won't make the same mistakes. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're all about here is, is, is trying to prevent disaster. Yeah, 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 getting better, even if somebody else has already shown how not to do it. <laughs> well, let's jump right in. You know, we, we've uh, been able to use the Velocity Facebook page to elicit some of these questions. And one of the questions that people seem to have a lot about is managing stakeholders. Uh, you know, s- negative stakeholders sometimes, um, you know, winning them over. Let's talk a little bit about how maybe we do that. Yeah. Um, stakeholder has a broad definition, right? Just to, to make sure we're talking about the same thing. A stakeholder is anyone who holds the stake in the project. What's interesting, and I know Andy and I have shared war stories on this before, there are times when you are super excited about the project that you're a part of or that you're leading, Yet there's some real opposition. There, there are things, I mean, by definition, project brings about change. It changes the status quo. And some people are firmly entrenched in that status quo. You're going to disrupt something that's a part of their job or even a part of their identity. So you'll have negative stakeholders, people that are against you, that you have to, to identify and then really dig in and see, okay, why are they against us? What is it about this project? that's causing them fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Have you? Does this resonate with you, Andy? It does. So 
I've had a couple of um, of interesting things that come to mind with that. First one was uh, I was working with a pharmaceutical company uh, that uh, we were working on an enormous IT project, and I was the PM. Um, we had a stakeholder uh, that was head of one department who was fundamentally against this project. Hmm. She was not happy at all about it. And she dug in and really made uh, put in a lot of friction into the process. Um, now, that one has a happy ending because mm. ultimately uh, I worked really hard to engage her and to get her opinion, to document it, and it took weeks to get her engaged. But finally, she bought into to the idea of the system we were creating. Mm. She got to put her processes into it. She got to put her opinion and have her fingerprint. So that was a happy one. Mm. Um, I was managing a project for uh, one bank that was buying another bank years later. And actually, it wasn't that much later, but uh, a short time after that, I was managing this project. And one person took me aside, and he was a subject matter expert in a domain, kind of the head of a domain within that. And he took me aside and he said, I have been advocating for the system you're doing for years, and mm. nobody's listened to me. So one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to do it and get credit for it, right. you know, or it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to listen to you either. But either way, I'm not helping you. And he was openly hostile. Wow. Um, now, that one didn't have his happy ending. You mm. know, I had to really work hard and ultimately to, to marginalize the guy. I mean, yeah. there was no way to win him over mm. that I at least it wasn't within my tool belt. Um, mm. I tried everything I could. And outside of that environment, nicest guy you'd meet. Inside that environment, openly hostile. Oh, yeah. He had a history. Man. At least he came forward and let you know. That's one of the scariest things for me with project teams is when we're we're whistling, going to work every day, feeling like we're making good progress. And then there's this unhid, there's a hidden force that we haven't uncovered yet that is undermining our efforts. Right. And then further down the road, we, we realize, oh... We thought they we, we thought we had support here, but we're not getting it, and here's the impact that it's having. Right, and so you know, ultimately, I had to sit down with his boss and with her boss and kind of explain the situation. I'm getting zero cooperation mm. here. In fact, I'm getting open resistance, and they were kind of like, "Yeah, we know, yeah. you know, he's he's about to retire soon, you know." We're, <laughs> right, <laughs> but, right. But he was the only one who had the information too, mm. and so it was really challenging to try and work around this guy. Yeah, that was. That was really, I think, the only time somebody has just been openly hostile to my project and tried every way they could. Now, a lot of people deal with that uh, much more regularly. Yeah. You know, you may be building a building somewhere where people in the community don't want that building. Right. You may be um, uh, putting an assembly line in place that's going to put people out of work or automation mm. tools in mm -hmm. place. So it does happen. Yeah. It's just been fairly rare for me. I recall uh, hearing a... There was a project manager talking about a, a certain project in the Atlanta area and it involved this really large bridge that was being constructed. And it was uh, an area that was being developed that everybody in the public was very excited about. So he's, he and his team are thinking, this is going to get tremendous support. We're already hearing it. We're getting positive press, et cetera. Then they had an open, they had a, like an open mic session, a, a public forum. And there, that's when folks showed up who were very against it, very loud. 
And of course, the press was there, so that made for a, an ugly engagement for him. But sometimes we get surprised by that. Right. You know? I think, you know what, Nick, I think the best thing you can do, um, and the real question was, you know, how do you win negative stakeholders over? If they can be won over, right. I think the way is engage, engage, engage. Hmm. People want communication. They want to feel like they know what's going on. They want to register their opinions. They want to be heard. Yes. And a lot of times we just want to talk. We don't want to listen. But sit down and get that information, elicit it from them, talk to them. Mm-hmm. It makes a big difference. It really does. That, that's such a strong point for us to listen as project managers. Sometimes we feel like we've been given this power. We've got to get it done. Right. But we have to understand those and understand their side. Walk a mile in their shoes. See why they have resistance. You know, this question leads into uh, another issue that a lot of our listeners are concerned with, and and that is common challenges. I mean, a lot of these things you, you're talking about, maybe are, are they common to all projects, uh, or are there other things that are that are common uh, that you're going to see again and again and again? Yeah, um, man, we could talk forever about this. Mm-hmm. There, we have to start with stakeholder analysis, right? We've talked about the, the need for that and identifying those who are against us, those negative stakeholders. But, you know, many of the experiences that I had were uh, involving external customers where uh, we were on site at the customer's location, whether it was a Pacific Acid Electric or an AT&T or Verizon, whomever it was. And there we're working in usually in their headquarters with their financial department. And there's just so much to be aware of. Uh, You know, so for many project managers, they talk about putting on the consulting hat and how different that is when they're working with uh, another department internally or an external organization. Uh, so there are many challenges with that. And Andy, I, I know in my experience, there were, I certainly had my growing pains professionally. And then when we brought new people onto the team, there were similar growing pains that we had to, you know, as those who had been down there and made some mistakes, we had to kind of walk them through expectations. Simple stuff like when you're on the customer site, how do you behave? You know, how do you communicate with customers? What do you do when you're working there late at night? Those kinds of basic things. The typical consulting model. Uh, and to all the consulting project managers out there, um, I, I'm lighting a candle for you guys. <laughs> well, it's a tough gig, and it I've is. done it. Um, mm-hmm. I loved it. Uh, I loved it because you get to go get, uh, get a variety of problems. You get to see a variety of industries. And if you're up to the task, then you pick up things at every engagement. You pick up something new that you can carry back. However, the trouble with that model is and the challenges with that model um, are you're probably working with a team that you haven't worked with before. Mm -hmm. You're in an organization where you have little to no authority at all, you know, just almost nothing. And now you're in there trying to implement change. Right. And so some people are really good at that. You know, some of these guys, the way they talk, the way that uh, the the head partner in a consulting firm will even communicate is just impressive. Hmm. Um, some of them are really challenged. And yes. so, you know, the, the typical model, Nick, what they'll do is you have somebody at the top who is really sharp, really good, knows their game, and then you have a bunch of associates. And the associates down at the bottom are kept in that organization by convincing them that one day they're going to make their way <laughs> yeah, up this pyramid right. to the top. And and uh, they give out lots of titles, and it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting uh, business model. But 
from that standpoint, yeah, there are a lot of common challenges. And the common challenges are um, there may or may not be an organizational methodology that you have to follow. You may be going in with your own methodology, and it may actually just be the project manager that you're assigned to this month. Some of them are, they're not all created equal. Some PMs are really good at handling situations, handling stress, handling that dynamic environment, Mm. communicating with customers. Some are not. Yeah. Andy, I know one of the expectations that uh, some organizations put on the project manager in these consulting type engagements is, hey, I want you to do some sales while you're there. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And, And for many, they're like, Okay, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. What do you right. mean? I need to. There are actually expectations on me to sell follow up business. Well, and they may not even tell them that overtly. They may just build it into their comp plan exactly. so that then you find out, you know, now you have all these incentives. So yeah. now the PM is not just there uh, trying to deliver some product, service, or result. Now the PM is there trying to ensure job security going forward. Right. Yeah, that's tricky, tricky stuff. Yeah. And so for the project manager who feels like maybe they're in a situation like that, you have to keep asking questions. I love your analogy. There's somebody at the top for these different projects. Ask why. Look and see. What do you think? Hey, Lisa, if you're at the top, what led to your success? Why do you think you're here? You know, because I really deliver value or I deliver value and I sell more value. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what is it that has gotten them there? You know, Andy, another thing that I think about with these consulting type projects uh, many, this goes back to that first question about negative or difficult stakeholders. Uh, one of the things that, that we would often have to overcome with the, the, uh, the consulting type projects, we'd show up and there was history. We're walking into a client engagement. We're excited about it. We've, you know, our sales team has sold this engagement. We're going to install our software for this utility. The folks that we're actually working with, the customers, they're looking at us like, okay, they kind of got the hands on the hips, so they're looking and going, all right, here go, here's another one of these programs that management's shoving down our throats. You know, I got to learn this new software now. Uh, we're going to create all this mess with IT. So they're resistant and trying to get at that and understand why, again, walking in their shoes, trying to understand the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt that they have and why is, is a big part of that consulting process. I mean, Andy, there's one particular, I remember this one client vividly. I'm not going to say who it is, but when we first showed up, they, they there was no trust. And we're like, what, what happened? I'm literally thinking the sales guy must have done something right. really bad here. I've never heard of a sales guy <laughs> over-promising, <laughs> over-promising or anything, <laughs> right? I'm thinking, oh boy, I got to take a look at this contract and see what happened. But it turns out they had had um, a, a bad history with a, a top consulting company, you know, one of the the big four at the time, because the big four, they had their top consultant, but then they had a number of minions. Right. And they had the a history. associates, yeah. Yes. Those associates would come in and bill the client and basically learn on the job. Oh, yeah. And these guys were, they just told us straight up, you know, we're, we don't want to be teaching you our business. And we're like, okay, wow. So then we started to understand where that history was coming from. So it, it's tricky, but I, I loved the, uh, it, to me, every engagement was exciting because there were new challenges like that that you would uncover. So I would say these consulting type projects are not for the weak at heart. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question about technology development. And the question is, does the technology development model work for non-IT work groups? That's an interesting question in and of itself. And I'll tell you why, where my brain goes with that. 
Um, let's, let's rewind far back in history, and let's go back to a time, let's go back to the Renaissance, the real, <laughs> the actual Renaissance, you know. And so you go back to the 12, 1300s, uh, all the way up through the 1500s in Rome. And it's really interesting to look at how projects were done there because what would happen is a wealthy patron, somebody from the Medici family, somebody like that, one of the popes, would bring in skilled craftsmen. Mm. And the fascinating thing was the skilled craftsmen were really, really inexpensive. So they could bring in an amazing artist for a little bit of money. What cost a lot of money was the raw materials. Mm. So now in order to supply them with paint, um, well, that was difficult to get because you had to perhaps travel to somebody who was an artisan who did it or to have marble quarried and mined and shipped in. That was a, a mm. very elaborate process. And so under that model, and this model persisted for a long, long time, that labor's inexpensive, materials are super expensive. Now look at IT and look at where we are now. Um, a developer... A good software developer, and there's a there's a, a concept called a full stack developer, and that's someone who can basically do anything from the highest level scripting language all the way down to the lowest level uh, code. Got all the skills. Yeah, everything in between. Understands the full stack. Um, to to hire one of those people is going to be really pricey. Okay, very expensive. However, um, you can put them on a two thousand dollar computer, and they're moving electrons all day, and there's <laughs> almost no resource cost past the, it's the labor now. Yeah. So it's, it's inverted. This whole model has flipped upside down, and it's changed the dynamics. But here's the problem, Nick, is one of the—so people who know me know I'm a fanatic about Japanese management. Uh, I just am. It's the way my brain works. It's what I was raised on and what I was steeped in. And Japanese management, one of the things they do is just in time just-in-time inventory. But, Bill, there's an advantage to just-in-time. There's a couple. One is you don't have your supply chain full of stuff that you mm -hmm. don't need. But what's another? Well, it keeps your costs down. It drives your quality. It forces you to focus on quality. That's it. It forces you to focus on quality. Now, uh, this craftsman only has a very limited inventory of materials. So he or she has to be really careful with those materials. Uh, they have to treat them as precious resources. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's almost like going back to this Renaissance model right. again. The trouble is now it's cheap to put a programmer. Um, well, it's not cheap for the labor, but the, the parts are almost insignificant and inconsequential. So this is the, to answer your question, that model mm -hmm. is risky. The technology development model in general is risky, and it's risky because it encourages waste. Yeah. And that's something we don't talk a lot about because technologists, you know, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. And so we're big fans of uh, technology. We want to apply this to everything. Um, the trouble is it creates a wasteful environment, especially where resources are important, where uh, the physical resources matter. All right. You guys ready to get into Agile? I'm ready. I love <laughs> Agile. <laughs> well, well, we have, I guess, what is sort of a basic question, and that is that is Agile truly being used or are companies implementing smaller waterfall projects instead? <laughs> I laughed when I read this one, Andy. I thought, this sounds like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing Agile, wink, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer here is yes. 
companies are absolutely finding a lot of value following agile methods. Uh, what's been interesting is Andy and I have spoken with folks recently looking at the those who are either personally or on their project team, they're faking agile. By that, I mean they've read enough or they've been exposed to agile and they say, okay, but they grew up doing traditional or doing waterfall. And uh, so that's, that's kind of intriguing to me is when people are either putting things on their resume that are not, not maybe 100% accurate, you know, in terms of the experience they've had with Agile, or even more interesting to me, they've got a team that they say they're going to use Agile methods, but they're really not. They're slapping some things together. We've encountered that uh, with a vendor recently that we've <laughs> been dealing with, and they, they call themselves Agile, and it's just not an Agile process. Now, it's funny though because have you ever have you ever uh, dealt with somebody who's maybe like a really really a rabid purist in a particular topic? Maybe it's their diet, maybe it's mm. their exercise, mm-hmm. maybe whatever, and they're always trying to establish themselves as a little bit more devoted to whatever right. it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've never yeah. met anybody like that. I mean, I, I, I never. Could, I, I, you want names? <laughs> and <No. laughs> and those, those people also exist in the Agile community. So if you have any non-Agile practice that creeps in, man, they're quick to say, well, mm. you're, you're not really doing it. You're not really a devotee to Scrum. You're mm. not really, um, you know, this isn't extreme programming. That's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. The, the trouble is it's very difficult to implement pure Agile unless your organization is, is supportive of pure Agile. Right. If they don't, if your organization does, has any traditional management practices, where those two meet can get really wonky, mm. and it's tough to be purely Agile. Yeah. I recall a conversation we had in this room with Tim Kelly. Their organization was rolling out safe, and... They had to get their uh, highest ranking, their top management, to really buy into it, understand it, buy into it, and then, you know, be out there sponsoring it, really well, putting the word out. And and people will nod and agree with you in meetings, but then they go right back to the practices they've been doing. So so yes, I we definitely see organizations here doing some cool things with agile and definitely implementing it. But I, you know, is it pure enough for the purists? Probably not. You know, I'm sure that there are very few organizations that are doing it that would make uh, that would make the real strict purists happy. We've got somebody, and I want to read this question verbatim because they're asking something very, very specific here that goes along with this. This person says, I am just starting down the path of a project management career, trying to transition from IT tech services to a PMO. I just got my PMP, thanks to your book, by the way, he says. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that IT in general is very interested in or going to the agile PM practices. To further my career, do you recommend PMI ACP or Scrum Master or both certifications until I can gain real-world experience? All right. There's some alphabet soup in here. So <laughs> we know what the PMP is. That's a project management professional. Bill, what's a PMO? A uh, project management office. So it's interesting. The person, the reader, or the listener said, I'm transitioning from IT tech services to a project management office. Right. So a PMO in a lot of organizations offers guidance, offers oversight, helps yeah. set standards for projects. Um, that that's a fascinating thing. A good friend of mine, Dennis Bowles, has done a lot of research on PMOs and on the challenges they face. 
And his research has been rather eyebrow-raising, mm. that a lot of PMOs struggle. Uh, a lot of them have trouble finding their voice in the organization. And really, I think the ones that succeed, succeed because they're in a pure support role. They right. support projects. The mm. ones who try and control projects, they don't... They're going to get a lot of resistance. Well, they do I mean, get a lot of resistance uh, yeah, yeah, before they get guy. dismantled. Right, so, right. But this is an interesting question. Bill, how would you answer? Um, do you recommend PMIACP or Scrum Master? And what's the? this is a, this is a, uh, a part B to this question that's mm. not written down, but what's the role of a PMO in an agile organization? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Back to part A. With PMIACP, with the Agile Certified Practitioner, from PMI, I think you have to have 1,500 hours of experience with Agile projects. So one of the one of the quick points to this particular question is you've got to have experience in order to get the PMI ACP. That's right. not true for the the CSM. Though, no, certified Scrum Master is easy to get. Yeah. Let's just be honest; it's an easy certification. Um, I don't I don't know career value wise where it would fit in the chain, mm-hmm. but it's easy to get. It's quick right. and dirty. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, the advice that they're asking for near the end of the question to me is, uh, I would say, try to find, try to get some experience, find some opportunities to use Agile practices, be a member of a project team that's using Agile or a contributor or uh, maybe a a SME just participating in that. And then see if it really resonates. See if, okay, I like this. This is me. This is who I am. And then go deeper, look for opportunities to manage those types of projects. And then pursue those uh, certifications. You said a SME. Is this a Captain Hook uh, thing? <laughs> was, it, was that the guy's name, his uh, right-hand uh, henchman there? <laughs> yes, subject matter expert. Oh, yeah, right. subject matter expert. <laughs> Got it. Or Captain Hook's henchman. Well, I, I, but back to the question about what, how do you think a PMO should relate hmm. to the Agile uh, groups within their organization? What do they do? Well, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Because we see so, so many hybrids, and I would think a lot of confusion, especially for those who've had a lot of experience with waterfall projects. There Again, they need to be reminded almost weekly, what's the difference in how this Agile project should be running versus this other? Right. Because like you said, Andy, there are deep ruts. The more experience we have, the deeper those ruts are for traditional practices. So reminding best practices, yeah. going through those Agile, agile rituals, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, there's, a, there's a good opportunity to sort of facilitate this scrum of scrums. Yes. Um, all of these things. But Agile is about servant leadership, not right. top-down direction. Right. And so if the PMO comes in and says, you know, Here, <laughs> here's your checklist and I'm looking over your shoulder <laughs> yes. and I walked into the last meeting and everybody wasn't standing up and, you know, whatever right, it right, is, right. it's not going to go well. Right. But what a great opportunity for them to, it's almost like a uh, center of excellence, right? They get to identify, yeah. you know, what's working for Agile, what's working for traditional and then let's identify talent. Okay. Who's best for one versus the other? Honest question. Have you ever seen that done right from no. a PMO level <laughs> in an Agile organization? No. I haven't either. And so, yeah, it's a good challenge. I mean, if you're in an organization where that is going well and you really do have a center of excellence, um, send us a note because yeah, I'd, I'd love, love to, to know more. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with that. We've got a lot of questions here, and there's no way we're going to get to them all in one podcast. We're, we are going to deal with these questions again in our next podcast. But can we wrap up just maybe with a general question here? One of our listeners wants to know, just 
about project management certification in general. He says, I want to complete the project management certification as I want to start a career in PM. Please guide me. What sort of guidance can we give? Um, I, I wrote a book on it. <laughs> well, and, and so that's an interesting question because the PMP is not for somebody looking to get into project management. It's for somebody who has established themselves as a PM. Same with the PMIACP. So those are not entry-level uh, credentials. They're supposed to be for someone who spent some time there. I had a funny thing, Nick, that somebody um, asked me one time. They said, hey, I'm, I've read your book cover to cover. I'm taking the exam tomorrow. Do you have any last-minute tips for me? And I thought, I, I wrote a whole book of <laughs> yeah, right, It's not right. like I saved one or two out. <laughs> right. and I thought, okay, well, since you asked, I'll give you the real, uh, the real advice. But no, you know what? Um, first of all, some of the best project managers in the world are not credentialed. They're just really talented at what they do. And so the credential is supposed to add on to that, and it's supposed to uh, uh, be something that kind of attests to that person's capability. But it doesn't make you a better PM by mm -hmm. itself. Uh, just getting it. Now, I'm a big fan of the credentials. They've been uh, they've been good for a lot of people, and they do say something about what that person's done. But I would start out not focused on the letters after my name, not focused on the alphabet soup, but focused on the fundamentals of project management and learning it. Well, we are going to continue this conversation in a future podcast, but let me just say to the listeners, thank you so much for these questions. This is really, uh, I think this is good stuff that, that a lot of people need to know, want to know, and if we didn't get to your question, we're going to try to do that in a future podcast. So stay tuned. We'll get to them eventually. In the meantime, don't forget to collect your PDUs, Professional Development Units, toward your recertifications. You just earned some by listening to this podcast. To claim your free PDUs, go to Velociteach.com and choose Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on December 4th for our next podcast. You can visit us at velocityteach.com slash manage this to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.